Hello, you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name is Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Marber on today's episode. Ian is one of the best-known and well-regarded nutritional therapists in the UK. He's a best-selling author, award-winning health writer and food expert, and is known for his practical and balanced approach to nutrition. Ian founded The Food Doctor in 1999 and since went on to sell the brand in 2012, and he's consulted for many well-known brands. He's published 12 nutrition books, most recently Man Food, and he regularly appears as a nutrition expert on television and radio and had his own show on the Discovery Channel. Ian has worked with more than 12,000 private clients, as well as conducting workshops for major corporations, and he writes for several large publications, including being profiled by the New York Times and Sunday Telegraph. This is our first episode of the new year in 2022, and of course it coincides with January, a time that people typically resolve to be healthier and make New Year's resolutions. It's also a time where we tend to hear about the latest fad diets in the media. So in this episode, we'll be talking to Ian to really separate fact from fiction and calling out Nutribolics, leveraging Ian's expertise in this area. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome you in onto the podcast and thank you very much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So Ian, as I mentioned to you earlier, we begin all of our episodes by doing our quick fire round of questions so that we can find out a bit more about you and your background. So my first question to you is if you could pick up one new skill, what would it be? Uh, I'm really torn over this one. Um, uh, Obviously, putting aside the fact that I'd like to be able to fly, but um, one new skill, probably to speak several languages. Uh, that's the skill I'd really like. The The other one that I toyed with was the idea to actually uh, be able to create recipes because somehow that, that skill has completely passed me by. So just going back to the languages, any particular languages? Oh, and all of them, any, as many as I possibly could. Um, give you that. Give you the hardest ones. I think maybe Japanese, Chinese, like Korean. Um, I'd like to be able to speak all European languages. Um, you know, I, I've worked hard on mastering English, but I'm sure I still make mistakes. But um, I've still only got schoolboy French and restaurant Spanish. I'm not proud of those. Now, people might be surprised to hear that you'd like to develop your recipe uh, skills because, of course, you founded the Food Doctor. So, is res- is recipe development something you had to do as part of that role? No, somebody else kindly did it for me. Um, and yes, I suppose in any business, you do what you can and, and work with other professionals to do to you know to make the most of what they can do. Um, I think I, if I think about social media now, I see so many people on social media uh, talking about their recipes, and that seems to have uh, a real appeal. But um, I suppose uh, from maybe it's just a, a to give me a wider skill set, I think, but um, I'm just not that interested in recipes. It's a terrible thing to say. I shouldn't say that, but um, I'd like to be able to develop my own because at the moment, you know, I like really simple food. Maybe that reflects the fact that I'm a little bit older than some of my peers um, and, you know, like to keep things as simple as possible. I think that's quite interesting because I I certainly love flicking through recipe books and finding new inspiration, but can't always be bothered to actually go and cook the meals. So I think, you know, dietitians, nutritionists, nutritional therapists, we're surrounded by food, but perhaps like you said, we don't all enjoy all all aspects that comes with that. I think that's interesting. I think, um, you know, I suspect you're quite a lot younger than me, but um, I'm 58 a couple of weeks ago and I used to have piles and piles and piles of recipe books and I would flick through them and I would, I put little marks on what I wanted to cook and often did cook. And 
Now, I don't. I mean, I occasionally see a recipe in a newspaper. I might screenshot it on my iPad, um, but I, I don't often make them. I mean, I, I don't just have, you know, beans on gluten-free toast. I do cook, but I tend to cook the same 10 things and derivatives of those. And maybe that's what all of us do. I don't know. Well, that leads me on to my next question, which is, you know, as a real foodie, what is your favourite meal to make? Um, my favourite meal, um, I think I absolutely love salmon. Um, and I like the, the slightly, not smoked salmon, but the salmon fillets that are slightly smoked. Uh, I love those with broad beans, favourite vegetable, uh, walnut oil, um, salt, pepper. Um, I suppose uh, if it's my favourite meal to make, um, I suppose I'd also have probably some new potatoes on the side. If I was ordering it in a restaurant, I might have French fries. Uh, so, push the boat um, out. <laughs> yeah, push the boat out, exactly. Very nice. Very Mediterranean theme there. Yeah. And, and finally, what's been the best piece of career advice that you've ever received over your lifetime? Um, well, there are two. I know I shouldn't say that. The first one is never read the comments on in the newspaper, uh, especially under something that you've written or been involved in. Um, and I suppose uh, the other piece of advice is... Um, I said, mentioned earlier on is keep things simple. Um, someone who I admire greatly in business is, is always said, keep things as simple as you possibly can, which goes against the, um, the current trend for the kind of uh, self-promotion um, belief in yourself. Um, if I say Tony Robbins, I, I'm not uh, no criticism. How could I criticize? But that sort of, but that sort of belief, that self-belief, is quite complicated, I think. And um, I like to keep things as simple as possible. So yeah, keep it simple. Keep it simple and don't read the comments. I think that's a great com- uh, great thing to bring to attention because I know we've had people on the podcast before who do a lot of media work and, and they've talked about being trolled on social media in particular. I, and yeah, have you I, have you experienced that? I have, you know, quite, quite gently. I mean, not uh, being trolled on social media, obviously more recently, but, but in the past, um, yeah, there have been some negative comments and, you know, we're all, not all of us, I'm certainly guilty of this, is that, you know, if you, if you have nine good things that you read and one bad thing, that the one bad thing tends to take precedence in your mind, certainly in your memory. It's like the pain of a wiggly tooth, isn't it? You know, when you're a kid, you can't stop your tongue from just checking it out every now and again. Um, I Social media, I have been trolled and um, quite viciously, uh, and, um, you know, not, not because of something you know, I said or something that somebody disagreed with. In other words, it's never a, a maybe that's the mark of social media. It's never a, a balanced discussion. It's just vicious. And again, like that individual comment, it stays with you. At least it stayed with me. And um, I, I trolled quite recently and considering leaving Twitter as a result because, um, you know, I rarely read anything nice on Twitter specifically. And, um, I, I come away from Twitter, irrespective of I've been trolled, watching the comments about other people. It's just a nasty place. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. And Twitter, I don't know if you feel the same, but it seems to be the worst out of all the social platforms. I don't know if it's the nature of the short, snappy tweets. You can you know, rather impulsively put your opinion out there, perhaps without thinking it through before pressing send. I wonder um, if, it's, if it's also, if, you, if we compare that to Instagram, which I, I resisted for some time, um, Instagram, I think having images somehow softens it. Mm. There's a there's a different connection, whereas Twitter uh, empowers and touches 
what was the ad? Reaches the, the worst parts of people. Um, and we've all got the worst part. I don't want to engage with this. It's, you know, as an adult, one learns to keep your, you know, that, that nasty part of yourself. Not all of us have it, of course. Maybe I'm saying the wrong thing. But, you know, we all know that we, we have uh, opinions and somehow we disagree with something. But as an adult, you, you present your disagreement as, as a, an argument or you don't present it at all. Uh, whereas on Twitter, that, that skill seems to have bypassed people or been abandoned. So it's a, it can be a horrible place. It can, although I certainly wouldn't like to see you go from Twitter and Instagram because I very much look forward to your regular Nutribolic polls on there. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I did fewer of them in the um, in one of the last two years, perhaps for obvious reasons, because a lot of the nominations come from uh, stores, retail. So people see things, take a photograph, send it. Without stores being open, there were fewer nominations. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all the stuff, all the uh, things that I include in Nutribolics are all nominations. I don't go and find them myself. Um, so, you know, it's not me settling scores or anything. It's just, it's, and some weeks I'll get 10 nominations. Some weeks I'll get three. Other weeks I'll get 50 or 60. Um, so, you know, it's hard work. It's fun, though. Well, we'll come on to the Nutribolics okay. poll a little later on in our conversation. Just to begin um, the topic for conversation today, I'd like to find out a bit more about where this interest in nutrition stems from and, and what led to you becoming a nutritional therapist. Um, I was, I had digestive problems growing up um, and to make a long story very short. Uh, I was diagnosed with celiac when I was 28 or 29. Uh, looking back on it, I had all the obvious signs, failure to thrive and I was first put on solids. Um, shorter than everyone in my, my, my school friends' family. I'm the shortest person in my family. You know, when you, you see those school photographs and everyone's in a line, I was always, you know, like, the, there was always like a, the camera would have to go down slightly for me. Um, and I was diagnosed with celiac. And to me, it was a, one of those light bulb moments. I was in a career that I didn't really enjoy uh, in commercial investment and uh, wanted to do something else. And this just seemed, it just directed my attention and my focus elsewhere. I looked at studying and um, then, of course, no internet. This was all uh, uh, libraries and um, writing to places. Um, I didn't really understand the difference between dietetics, well, dietitians, nutritionists, nutrition therapists. Um, and of all the places that I uh, applied to, as it were, at least inquired of, um, nutrition therapy was the most responsive and the friendliest, I might add. And what was the the training that you went through back when you qualified? Um, Before I went, I went to the Institute for Optimal Nutrition, studied for three years, got a, uh, a, uh, what have I got, a diploma of all things in nutritional therapy. Um, At the time there was, uh, the course was about to be validated for a BSc and 20 years later, that's finally happened. I could go back and convert it, but I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe is that arrogance? Think I, not that I don't need to, but yeah, I don't think it'll change anything I do. Um, I did start a master's degree uh, and for family reasons had to stop quite abruptly and have never taken that back up again. So more fool me, but um, you know, may, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I should ask, what do you think? Do you think I should go off and do a B- convert to a BSc? I just don't know how useful it would be for me now. Well, I think you should do whatever feels right to you. And, and like you said, what, what's it going to change, you know? Yeah, 22 If years. anything. So, you know. 
Now, as you're aware in This is a Dietitian Cafe, so predominantly it's a podcast run by a dietitian, myself, and aimed mainly at dietitians. So some people listening might be thinking kind of the elephant in the room question, what has Harriet done? Exactly. And so I really think it's an important topic for us to discuss. Why is there this hierarchy or divide between dietitians, nutritionists, and nutritional therapists? And, And what do you feel can be done? And should we be addressing this? Um, in a way, I've not disengaged, but I'm less involved in this certainly than I was f- five years ago. Um, when I first qualified, I didn't really know the difference because uh, my experience of uh, nutrition as an applied nutri- uh, I don't know how to describe it, um, uh, as, as an applied science or inaction, as it were, when I was first diagnosed celiac, I was sensitive dietitian who said, more or less, don't eat gluten. I mean, of course, very obvious. When I asked if there was anything else I could do, the answer was no. Um, and I think, um, no, that's it. Um, and I didn't know the right questions to ask. The uh, dietitian um, who has long since retired didn't offer any other. Um, it was just, it was very cut and dried. Um, but this was, you know, a long time ago, 1850 or something. So, um, uh looking back on it, perfectly standard advice for the time. Um, I don't know if I agree there's a hierarchy between them. I think there certainly was. And I think that was very much um, uh, led by, understandably, by dietitians. And I think, to, and I know this will make me unpopular in all sorts of places, when I first qualified, I think there was an awful lot of really low-grade nutritional therapists, um, as there would have been nutritionists and dietitians. I I wasn't aware of them because I just didn't interact. Um, Many years later, maybe five or 10 years later, I was concerned that a lot of nutrition therapists uh, were making claims that didn't seem, there was no, 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 no break mechanism. Nobody stopped them. Nobody interacted and said, that's not right. There was no, um, there was no consequences to being a crap nutrition therapist. Um, And I also think because nutrition therapy at the time, private practice meant an income, and I think that was uh, a sore point for many people who perhaps work within the NHS. So there were people like me who were making money. Um, that wasn't my driving fact, driving force, mind you. So I was making money, private company, um, and uh, in a way, I got a lot of the flack because I was perhaps one of the most prominent nutrition therapists. That wasn't what I set out to do, by the way, but it just happened around me. Um, I think. There is a divide because of the level of training. I think that social media has softened that divide. And I think that after 20 something years of people like me being around, nutrition therapy has been around for 30 something years. Um, It's clear that nutrition therapy isn't going away. So I think that um, the various doctrines have learned to live with one another. And also um, social media has given us the pleasure of some really, really, patently unqualified people with huge followings making claims that are ridiculous. So effectively, people who are qualified in whatever doctrine should work together to make sure that the people who are not qualified in any way are silenced or at least, you know, there's silence sounds very dramatic, or at least uh, there are good alternatives to those people. 
Yeah, that's very interesting what you said about being held accountable to what you're putting out there in terms of nutritional messaging. So as you're probably aware for dietitians, we obviously have the HCPC, the Healthcare Professions Council. We have the BDA, which we can become members of. Are there organizations that nutritional therapists can join, which kind of hold them accountable for the information that they're putting out there? Um, well, the British Association of uh, Nutritional Therapists, um, which I have not been a member of for about a decade. And the reason is very simple is that I got cropped. And I think things have changed now. And perhaps I should rejoin. And certainly I've had no contact with them. So in many ways, I don't know what I'm talking about. But back in the day, I didn't resign in a fit of temper. I just thought if there's no consequence to people making these ridiculous claims and um, what's the point? Well, you know, why, why, why be a member of a, an organisation that was, in my mind, then toothless? Um, and I know things have changed dramatically since. And um, I think I also got fed up for being, you know, I was the one that got it in the neck for everyone else's poor mistakes. So, I mean, look at, you know, Gillian McKeith and you are what you eat in all those days. I mean, she wasn't a doctor. She was patently not qualified, etc. cetera. But um, uh, as a result, people like me, not didn't I didn't lose jobs, but certainly we got it in the neck for not for what her mistakes were and what she did and said was nothing to do with us uh, or me. And um, I think, uh, as I said, because I was quite visible, I got most of the flack, um, and I thought that was patently unfair because you know I know that I worked diligently. The people that I worked with were diligent, and we. Uh, uh, not so much kept up with the research as much as we could. You know, we, we did all that we should. You know, we, we made sure that everything we talked about, everything that we uh, wrote about was uh, based on peer-reviewed research, et cetera. So, um, you know, I think I separated myself as much as possible from the uh, low-grade stuff that I didn't feel uh, was associated, I should be associated with. And you just talked about being evidence-based in your approach is that kind of common practice now amongst nutritional therapists do you it, think it is certainly of course it is and um uh, although a lot of people would like to think that it's not and i think certainly um uh, look, as we know in nutrition if whatever you say there is an alternative which was if you like could be if you look at the wrong research or the right research could be equally true um and so everything is open to criticism and everything is open to debate, but isn't that the whole point of anything based on research? I mean, because if we stuck solely with research, right, that's a done deal now, we'll never have to discuss that again, we would think that, I don't know, saturated fat caused raised cholesterol. Um, when, I don't know when you qualified, but when I first qualified, that was more or less the doctrine. And um, uh, to the point, and also that uh, eating cholesterol cause raised cholesterol and so saturated fat and eating cholesterol those were the only two things to bear to, to they were they were the primary cause of raised ldl um, and of course research continues etc etc has to be questioned and and uh, performed again i don't need to explain research so um we are just as much evidence-based as anybody else but in a way i don't talk about that because of course i should be um and I shouldn't have to, you know, hopefully clients will, will know that. Um, and, you know, if, I think uh, what will happen when you are doing one-to-one -one consultations in, in a private capacity um, is that you have a customer rather than a patient. 
and um, the customer is paying. And I think a lot of people will um, deliver what they think the customer wants, irrespective of whether it's not right or wrong, but they will certainly bend the truth to make sure that their customer is happy. I'm um, a little bit hard-hearted like that. You know, if, if this is how it is, and this is the advice that I can give you, if that doesn't work for you, then you, you know, a lot of people will then go and find someone who will tell them what they want to hear as opposed to what the, the fact is for their situation at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, there will always be people out there who appeal to different people, you know, who will give them that information that they want to hear. But um, do you think that the, the public are aware of the differences between registered nutritionists, dietitians and nutritional therapists? Or do you think that they consider them to be kind of all on all similar? I think uh, some people are, certainly, um, but certainly fewer people. In fact, almost nobody asks anymore. Um, it used to be something that was brought up sometimes, now almost never. Um, and also uh, what's, what's interesting is that uh, if I look back on uh, press stuff from 10, 20 years ago, um, you know, it was never my aim to be in the media, it just sort of happened around me. Um, and oftentimes where a newspaper was published or television or radio, someone said, joining us now is, or I spoke to, and they'd call me nutritionist. It was already done. I couldn't change it. Um, or nutrition expert or nutrition guru, which makes my skin crawl. But, you know, you're, when you're on television or you're interviewed, you're, you're not in charge of it. Um, you are uh, a participant. And um, if you aren't, I think I once corrected Peter Snow live on air about being a nutrition therapist. I never went on Channel 4 News again, having been on many times. Because I, 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 I had to. He, they'd never called me nutritionist before. And I think on that occasion, they called me Dr. Ian Marber nutritionist. And it was so, you know, there were two. I couldn't let it go because it was factually wrong and made claims. They never had me on again because I interrupted him, understandably. Well, good for you. Um, but I, I, I understand that problem, especially any professional doing media work it's very easy to be misquoted by a journalist. And, and once that information's out there, it's very difficult, like you said, to, to go and correct it. Um, and also, um, if, if I was misquoted, then of course, people through social media will come at me. And it's a bit weak to say, oh, I didn't say that. Yeah, yeah, that's when the trolls kick in. What you can to, to get on top of it at the time. We've heard a bit about your background as a nutritional therapist, what led you to... Um, become interested in this area but many of our listeners are, are going to be familiar with the food doctor which is a yeah. brand that you uh, founded several years ago and be became very successful it's been known to be one of the most innovative health food brands in the uk can you tell us a bit more about how that experience has influenced the rest of your career i i mean i yes certainly um i was completely naive and about this and what happened was that a uh my then writing partner, Vicky Edgson, and I approached a publisher with an idea to write a book. Um, amazingly, they said yes. And um, we were brand new at this, had no idea what influence, how, how, to what extent we could influence any of it. And we wrote what is a particularly naive book with respect. <laughs> I mean, and uh, the publishers wanted to call it The Food Doctor. I mean, I didn't know I could say no or yes. So they called it The Food Doctor. And then um, when it came out in September 99, um, I, I really had no experience of this at all. Suddenly, 
within days, I was being asked to write for the Times, and it was like I had an established career in the media within overnight. So uh, we formed a limited company called the Food Doctor, just you know because it seemed like a good phrase. It all seems quite um, you know as if we were corporately aware and commercially minded. Um, we really weren't. We knew there was something there. We didn't know what it was. Then got approached by investors, and within a year. We'd raise, we had we had a managing director, we had a board, they'd raised a seven-figure sum. We had 18 months after that, we had done deals with, gosh, was it Tesco's? We had a range of food in Tesco's. And then um, uh, we did the company's licensing deals and we had food brands. We had our own brand in Waitrose, Tesco's, Sainsbury's, Asda, all up and down the country. Um, we had 70 or 80 food products. Um, and so... What I learned from it was I learned a lot about the food industry. I learned a lot about food retail, which I knew nothing about. Um, I learned a lot about marketing and, um, you know, however much, uh, for instance, people say, oh, you should do this and get it on the shelves and wait for Well, we, we wanted to, but it would take a year to get to that point. You may have the world's best food product, but if there wasn't a barcode assigned to it, it was no way it was going to go into the shops within six months because the barcodes were assigned several months beforehand. Um, I learned how um, food retail had uh, was a, a, a mucky business sometimes. Um, I learned about the finances and uh, what one had to do to get on shelf. Uh, I learned about media. I learned about so many things that I never knew would happen. Um, what has enabled me, what, the best parts of that when I sold the brand in the end of 2011 was... Um, uh, you know, I was able to take with the best parts, which is an understanding of how, uh, you know, to create, go, to help entrepreneurs and food businesses from an idea onto shelf, um, what to look for uh, with you know, startup brands, how to advise them on all sorts of aspects of, you know, the commercial interests and, and how to make sure that the, the message you had to begin with remains true or as true as it possibly can, having gone through the various filters and the obligations one has to other commercial interests before it becomes a real food product. Now, selling the business um, about 10 years ago, that, that's quite uh, an achievement in itself, you know, being able to walk away at a time, like you said, when it's the right time for you. Yeah. Tell us a bit about what you've been doing since then. Um, yeah, some, uh, it's interesting. I did a, a radio show a couple of, about six months ago, and the uh, presenter said, um, was talking about nutrition. So what was it like in your day? So um, there, there's some people often say, what do you do these days if I don't do anything, which is uh, sometimes I wish I didn't. Um, I work with lots of brands quietly in the background, restaurant brands. Um, uh, Pre-pandemic, I was working with a chain to do a, uh, a range of, uh, not a range, a plant-based menu and reviewing their whole menu for its nutritional offerings. Um, and that was a big job. Uh, which obviously got postponed and now probably won't happen at all. Um, I've worked with Soho House Group. There's a, a vegan brand called Bowl, B-O-L, which is, um, I work quite a lot with. Um, so many brands I work with quietly, whether it's a three-month contract or you know, an ongoing issue. Um, I've, I've done a little bit of work for Biochem many years ago for a vegan supplement company they had called Vertiz. Um, and um, that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. I've resisted working with supplement companies because I think a lot of nutrition 
you know, if you pick up some of the alternative uh, nutrition magazines, there's almost no talk of food in there, They're nearly always about supplements. And I think that um, uh, I'm not comfortable there. I'm really not comfortable with that. I, I've recently agreed to do some work with Solgar, um, not because they suddenly came along and said, look, here's all this money, um, but because I think I'm in a position now to be able to say, I'm not going to hold up a bottle of Solgar pills and say, look, these are the best vitamin D ever, because you know, vitamin D is vitamin D. Um, it's about uh, talking about food, talking about aspects of nutrition, with, but not endorsing a brand. So um, I'm keen, I won't do that anyway. Um, uh, what else have I done? Gosh, um, private clients, a lot of private, lot of private clients. Um, there's a, an ongoing gag when you know, somebody um, says, you know, what are you doing today? I say, I'm deflating the bloated, which is um, a, a, a big part of nutrition therapy these days, it seems. What else have I done? Um, a lot of media, a lot of radio and television. Um, I think I, I was very pleased to come out of a, a, a very corporate environment. Um, and, um, you know, perhaps the part of my work that I like the most is the the one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one clients, but also I do a lot of public speaking workshops for corporates, um, and that's really good fun. But also it really, uh, I'm not being the most articulate this morning, but, um, but, but articulate person, but it really enables me to deliver a message in, you know, 40 minutes um, to an audience who are dying to look at their phones again. So, um, uh, you know, that's, that's something I really enjoy. I think every talk I give, even the same one, gets better and better and better. And I think some of our listeners will be wondering, how do these opportunities come to you? Do you think it's because of your presence in the media? Do you do much marketing on social media? How do brands find you? Um, I... When I was at the food doctor, I, we never, we didn't have a marketing department. Things just came to us. And if it was, often it was to me. So um, it, maybe I got rather spoiled, hopefully not arrogant. Um, certainly when I left the food doctor, I decided I didn't want, I think I'm not very good at self-promotion. And so I don't have a marketing company or a publicity agent. Uh, I've been approached many times to have a publicist. Um, you could do so much better. You could be this, you could be that. I just, I don't think I want to be that exposed, being absolutely open. Um, I don't want to be that exposed personally, because uh, it's not that I'm thin-skinned, but I don't want to live with all the criticism. Um, and things are so critical on social media now. Uh, I'm not very good at promoting myself on social media. I see people who do it very deftly, um, you know, reposting their own stories when someone else quotes them. I, it's not for me. Um, to do that no each to their own but of course one thing you're very good at is calling out nutritional nonsense on social media and um, yeah. given that it's January typical time for fad diets in the media can you begin by defining what you consider to be a fad or a fad diet um, okay two definitions it's a really interesting question actually it's two definitions of a fad diet a fad diet is what other people do because we like to think that what we're doing is a sensible decision based on our lived experience, which of course it probably is. And only later on do people look back and go, that was a bit of a fad. Um, a fad diet is something that now I've got you know, more experience. To me is a reinvention of a, an individual part of how uh, you know, physiology is. So if we look at something like um, 
uh, Atkins, take that as an example. Um, you you and, and most people listening would have seen Atkins high protein plans come and go in various guises. And each time they're presented as fresh, new, a hack. That's the, the latest, uh, that, that's what we used to think of tips now called hacks. Um, I think the definition of a, a, a fad diet from that perspective is something is uh, taking an individual way, an individual aspect of diet and nutrition and um, claiming that it is, this is the holy grail, this is the key that other people have missed. So um, there is no one definition, but that, that to me is definitely a red flag. Yeah, I was going to ask you, are there any big indicators or red flags that might suggest that something we see is kind of too good to be true? Um, yeah. Uh, if an individual is promoting it based on their own experience, huge red flag. I mean, massive, because um, uh, that the first one. Then, then um, uh, if the person is has no background in science, none whatsoever, but is talking about science, then you need to, you know, there's, there's a little red flag there because uh, they often, I mean, if we look at something like the alkaline diet, they're kind of sciencey words, you know, uh, you can say pH um, and what's the other, when there's, an, when there's a phrase repeated again and again and again, such as what is it, um, cancer doesn't thrive in an, acid, uh, an alkaline environment. Um, uh, when there's a phrase like that, talked about by someone who has no knowledge of this elsewhere and doesn't display any knowledge of it or any context, that's a red flag too. So that's interesting because you call out a lot of these red flags on your Twitter poll, hashtag Nutribolics. Can yeah. you tell us a bit more about the rationale behind you starting this poll? Okay. Um, it, I, it wasn't started, I, a couple of things. First of all, it's not, it's never personal. Um, I redact sounds very dramatic, but I never, I always remove any references to individuals because it's not personal. It's not calling out an individual in any way. Um, and uh, I don't come up with these things. People send me nominations. Fewer now than before, because I think that everything has its time, and I wonder if Nutribolics is coming to the end of its, not natural life, but coming to an end of its popularity. Um, it started very simply because I was uh, on a top deck of a bus, and the bus next to us had some advert on the side of it, and I thought, that's crap. So I did a silly poll, literally between one stop and the next it took 30 seconds i um, got a huge response and then thought this is fun and carried on from there and it's become a little bit more formalized now um it's uh it is supposed to be fun it's supposed to have a serious side about calling out and why this is ridiculous um but some of them are just so obviously ridiculous that uh you know they don't need calling out so um, it started as a bit of fun. It's gone from there. It's become more formal. Um, and uh, I should probably do more of it. Do you ever get any backlash from the companies oh, or brands no. that you call out? Do I ever? Um, uh, well, amazingly, not many of them, because I never make it personal. I always make sure that there's no identifying features. Um, one brand kept being uh, called out again and again and again. Um and uh, when that happens, by the way, I have to consider the source because is somebody nominating it who's from a rival brand? I mean, this is only Nutribolics online. This is not, you know, a, a, a national poll. Um, so it's really, it's not important. But anyway, um, one brand kept coming up from different sources. So um, I sent them an email, which I had sent many times before to other brands saying, 
just a question about not saying you have been nominated, but just a kind of question about that ingredient, because you say this, and I can't find it on the on-hold list, um, and it, it's not a, you know, um, EFSA claim. Um, uh, and I just wondered, you know, just want to make sure, have I missed something? It, it, uh, that email has been um, not perfected, certainly, but has, has had various iterations. It couldn't be softer or kinder. And one brand came back with uh, threats of lawyers, Within an hour, I had a fancy London firm emailing me with threats. Um, and I thought, there's nothing on the post that's identifiable. So I posted it because I thought, you know, why should they get away with it? Because they've got money to spend on lawyers. Um, and they did nothing. They won the poll, by the way. Um, landslide. <laughs> um, and um, landslide, you know, 250 votes more than the other. Um, and nothing happened because their claims were ridiculous. So it very, very rarely when it has happened, it's, it's quite dramatic and a bit frightening sometimes. Have you ever had any positive instances where brands have made changes to their messaging off, off the back of your awareness campaign? Yes. Um, one brand in particular, um, not the brand with the fancy lawyers, uh, said, you know, what's wrong with that? How dare you? Troublemaker, only nutritional therapist. So um, I just said it, it's not an EFSA claim at all. Um, you shouldn't be making it. Here's the correct wording. Um, and then they, about six months later, uh, sorry, six weeks later, they contacted me to ask if I would act as a consultant for their messaging. And I thought, I never considered that to be a, a possible outcome. But I thought, why not? So I did. It was a really simple, you know, day-long job of just pointing out. They'd never heard of EFSA. They didn't know what the claims were. So um, it was a, a really simple job, um, just directing them. Um, I don't think they were happy with the outcome because they kept saying, yes, but now what about this? And what about that? I like the EFSA claims because it created a, a level playing field. And I don't like cheats. And I think that people who don't follow the EFSA rules are cheating um, and not playing fair with the other brands that are their competitors. Interesting what you said about EFSA and on-hold claims, because it's not something we get taught much about at all when we're training as dietitians. It's often something that people pick up from industry experience. Really? Um, is that something that as nutritional therapists you get taught about much during your training? My training was a long, long, long time ago. Um, and I don't know if it's part of the nutritional therapy training now. I suspect not. I think it's something you pick up. Um, I mean, there are some terrific dietitians who run courses on it, but I know that they're privately run courses. They don't go expensive and you get CPD for them. Um, but uh, it's something that we should all be aware of because mm. it, whether we work with industry or not, the uh, an individual who comes to us for advice, be they uh, referred by their doctor through uh, the NHS privately, nutrition therapy, whatever it may be, they will be influenced by some of these claims. Um, and if they're ridiculous claims, they may wonder why. And I think I can understand sometimes a client will say, yes, but, and they, will, they may be drawn towards a practitioner who, uh, go, who, who doesn't understand these claims and goes with them and um, uh, will use claims like, you know, I don't know, this is packed with vitamin C. Um, or very, So some people prefer that, each to their own. Some people prefer that. But I think um, it will affect all of us, even if we're not involved in packaging and media. Definitely. And, and of course, there are strong legal implications if you, you know, incorrectly advise a company on their messaging. 
So before Christmas, you shared a post on your Nutribolics poll that claimed grapes and limes could be um, nature's greatest lymphatic cleansers to eliminate cancer. And similarly, I was actually watching Food Unwrapped on the television a few nights ago, and they were talking about watermelon and claims that it, you know, prevented or cured cancer. Um, What are the dangers of misinformation like this being shared on television, social Uh, media? I think there are so many dangers. I mean, the first is that uh, it's, it dehumanizes people who have cancer. And I know that's because it implies, if some people, uh, if we look at the language, for instance, of illness, they beat X, they're a warrior, they're fighting. What about people who didn't? What about the people who were unable to, or the disease got the better of them? Somehow it's a personal fight, and I can understand that's very motivating, but there is, with every light, there is dark as well. And the shade side of that is, um, well, you didn't you didn't beat it, your fault. Uh, or what happens if you are diagnosed with, I don't know, type 2 diabetes, and uh, the, the messaging out there is that somehow you're implicated, it's your own fault. Um, and do you remember, it was Tom Hanks on one of the chat shows many years ago. I don't know if you remember this, when uh, the hosts, I think it might have been Graham Norton, said, you know, oh, you've got, you're diabetic. He said, yeah, I've got type two, the type that's my fault. And I remember thinking, oh, no, yeah, it's funny, but it's really, really unhelpful. And I think there's an element of that, um, that uh, a lot of claims um, are suggest faults that, well, you should have done it. You know, if you if only you had watermelon, um, and also the idea that it trivialises and minimises a highly complex disease, and I think that you know, I wonder if there's further implications further down the line that um, you know your oncologist, as part of a a, a highly professional team, um, has now has to spend time counselling the patient, saying no, no. Watermelon's going to do nothing. But you, know, you don't want to say that to somebody. You don't want to say, whatever you do makes no difference. I think, you know, as I mentioned, dark and shade, um, we have to have control of messaging because the implications further down the line, we can't predict at this point. And um, the last thing somebody wants to hear when they are being treated for a disease is to have a well-meaning relative or friend say, you know, you should have done this or you could have done that or, you know, my friend went to. Um, There's always going to be that. Always, always, always. Um, And, uh, you know, I I have a a, a very had a very, very sensible, intelligent friend, um, highly uh, intelligent, who spent just under a quarter million pounds on a clinic in Germany. Um, I mean, he subsequently died of of, of very complicated um, cancers, but um, it's impossible to say whether or not his life would, was extended or not. Was the money well spent? It's not for any of us to say or to know, but I remember having a sinking feeling that um, he was given, being given hope, not by charlatans, but by people who really believed all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that in part, in the tiniest part, is promoted by ridiculous claims that aren't called out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that perpetuating this information in the media is very harmful. So at this time of year, it's a great opportunity, of course, for healthcare professionals um, to be calling out fads. Do you have any advice to 
people listening for how they can use their social platforms to shut down a fad diet without perhaps being perceived as being, you know, the boring food police? Um, I, I, yeah, I, and I, yes, I do. And I'm, I'm sure that your listeners are probably far more adept at this than I am. Um, if you are going to not shut something down, but uh, you, you want to shut it down, is offer the alternative in the same post or in the same message. Because if you look at, uh, let's take um, uh, things that claim they're not a diet. And we, we, you know, we can all think of obvious ones. Um, when, of course, clearly they are a diet, is rather than say this is a diet like everyone else, um, is to soften the messaging and always offer an alternative that um, in, in the same language that the claim was made. So, um, you know, don't, don't, don't offer research, uh, don't cite research when um, for a kind of friendly, smiley diet that's being presented in a, a nice, soft way. Meet the, uh, match the messaging of the criminal, the crime, the, um, the, the bad advice, match the language of the messaging and always offer an alternative. Very wise words of advice. Thank you very much. And, and also on that note, do you think that um, COVID has impacted on the types of fad diets or the prevalence of fad diets that we're seeing on these social platforms? Um, you would have thought so. And I think if we go back to March to, well, 2020, um, the outrage, you know, why aren't the government giving prescribing vitamin D and zinc and, and weight loss? Um, and you, you just think, well, because it, it doesn't, it's not guaranteed. Um, firstly, secondly, what, what, are, what are people going to do? Sit in your house and make sure, did you take your vitamin D today? I want to see, you know, I want, get, I want proof. Um, and also, uh, it perpetuates this myth that uh, anything to do with medicine has, um, what's that phrase they always use? Follow the money. And that, that uh, Big Pharma is suppressing natural uh, remedies because um, uh, there's money in it. And um, that's why there's a very convoluted way of saying that the focus in 2020 was on the immune system and 2021, maybe less so. 2022, I've seen almost none of that. I see the diets and the fads and the promotion of diets. They will come back. I mean, what happened? Have, they, have the ads been sitting, waiting for the last but year? I wonder if off the back of the pandemic, there's obviously been a huge emphasis on optimizing people's health and, and more people have been thinking about nutrition, for example, and their weight. So I wonder if now we're so embedded in the pandemic, these brands feel like it's a time that they can move away from that COVID messaging. And like you said, kind of relaunch these diets as a way to. You know, if you look at, I mean, look, I, I, let's use an individual weight watchers. I mean, we all know that group uh, dieting with uh, group support can be helpful uh, we also know that uh, in order to create weight loss, you have to have a calorie deficit and calling them points instead of calories is no bad thing. Um, you know, I make no uh, uh, judgment on whether the plan works or doesn't work. Um, but if you look at the new adverts that we've got, you know, James Corden saying you can do this, there's nothing new. You can eat the foods you like. Um, and uh, you, it, I, look at, I looked at the ad on television the other day thinking, I mean, this ad could be from 1999, albeit a different celebrity presenting it. So um, yeah, I think some of the diets are appe uh, or the diet messaging feels a bit tired. And I think in a way that creates the opportunity for some brands to be innovative about that. Um, and I think some have. 
Look at Noom, for instance. It's psychology. Um, well, I mean, it may well be, but it's also a diet. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I reviewed Zoom, uh, sorry, Noom for the um, Telegraph, and um, it, it's a diet. And nothing wrong with it. It works if you follow it, like all diets. Um, I'm not sure it's psychology, but um, you know, I'm not there to correct their advertising. Uh, but I think that the there's a possibility for innovative messaging to come along because I think some of the messaging I'm seeing now this year is pretty tired and hackneyed. So I was going to ask you what your fad diet predictions are for the new year, but it, it sounds like from what you said, perhaps there aren't going to be so many new ones. It's more going to be uh, kind of you know repositioning existing ones. Uh, I agree, absolutely. But I also think that um, I have a real worry about uh, the... For instance, uh, intuitive eating. Um, last year we saw uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's functional medicine doctor had a diet was intuitive fasting. And that, that really irritated me because I thought that he was really co-opting uh, language that was nothing to do with diet, quite the opposite of diet um, and the diet industry and, and co-opting that phrase. And I was really uncomfortable with that. And I think... Um, a lot of the uh, diet plans in the future will co-opt the language of anti-diet movements. Um, mm. And that's, uh, I think that's inevitable um, as those phrases become more common in, in nutrition parlance, but it's not nice. No, that's very interesting. We actually had an episode recently on intuitive eating and, and all the evidence behind it. And of course, the anti-diet approach and to see brands manipulate that for their marketing purposes is, is really yeah. scandalous. And ultimately, you know, it's all about protecting the consumer, isn't it? And you think, well, yeah. actually, do these brands really have the consumer's health at the heart of what they're doing? Yeah, I, having been part of a consumer brand um, and having worked with many others, I have never worked with a brand who sit there and go, right, how can we screw over our customers to make the most money? I think even that they genuinely believe in what they're doing. I'm not sure that's a defence, by the way. They're not bad people. But I do think that um, a lot of brands involved in nutrition will employ nutrition people, um, sometimes just to validate what they do, genuinely to validate it, somehow, sometimes to give them an authority but they don't really care about the nutrition person's view. They're just buying the name effectively, whether it's individual name or at least the endorsement or the implied endorsement. Um, but just like social media, we follow people inevitably who reflect our values. I think brands employ nutrition professionals who agree with them. Um, I was uh, asked to front a campaign on careful how I say this. I was asked to front a campaign recently for a brand that had a new diet and they had also produced their own smoothie uh, weight loss powder drink. And the plan was in two phases. The first had two of their, <coughs> excuse me, weight loss drinks a day and then real food. Um, and this felt like a slim fast advert from 1986. Um, and the, that was the early phase, but then the maintenance, here's what you do forever, or have one of their shakes every day. And I was like, no, 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 that's not teaching food values. That's not actually re-education. That's not creating healthy habits in a client. Um, and so I said, so yeah, I'm happy to do it if you change that part. So that the smoothie, the, 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 the drink is an occasional if you have to, as opposed to an integral part. No. Mm. I thought, I don't like you guys. Don't want to work with you. 
Um, and I'm sure there's a hundred reasons why they didn't choose me in their minds. But um, I think the main reason was that I didn't go along with that commercial, purely commercial. So I take it back. I have met one brand who are only focused on, on money. I think that's a great message for anyone listening. If you're considering um, working with a brand, making sure that your values and your ethos is very much aligned with, with that brand. Um, yeah. Oh, I, yeah, it is. And I think that um, uh, I think so many people will have had a big knock to their income through COVID. Uh, so many dietetic nutritionists, nutrition therapists. Um, I hope that that doesn't mean that standards are lowered and people don't uh, take contracts because, uh, well, they have to. Um, uh, you know, my income for, gosh, slightly under a year went down by 60, 70% um, being freelance. That was no fun. Um, but uh, so I don't think people are going to jump and take crap contracts with second-rate brands who are out to screw the public, though. I don't need to imply that. No, but similarly, like you said earlier, sometimes working with brands and steering them in the right direction and educating them, if they're prepared to take your advice on board, can be a rewarding exercise. Yeah. And let's hope more brands follow suit. I think they will. I think it's also one, one note about that. It's about language. And if you say to your, your potential client, you can't say that, um, they won't like it. If you say, well, actually, that's an interesting message and here's the legal way of presenting that. And I wonder if there's a, <coughs> excuse me, a way that we can, you know, still represent your values. That sounds really sycophantic, but, you know, brands, they've worked hard to get to where they are. And I think that needs to be acknowledged too, but within, you know, f- that fair level playing field. Mm, absolutely. And being, remaining evidence-based and legal will help with their brand credibility and reputation as well. You know, so you, you, Earlier on, I like, used the phrase, you know, call out. Um, some brands do need calling out, but uh, some brands, you know, need a bit of help acknowledging how far they've come because as I said by the time they've contacted you there's an awful lot of people who've worked awfully hard absolutely well hopefully this episode will have inspired people listening to you know use their social platforms use their media presence to their advantage to help to continue to push that evidence-based message to to help to reduce this risk of fad diets which are typically being promoted at this time of year so that's all that we have time for today. Ian, thank you so much for, for joining me and for sharing your valuable experience on the Dietitian Cafe. Ian's social media handles will be linked in the show notes for you to take a look at. Do get involved with his Nutribolic polls as well. A huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to the Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or a five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out very soon. 